House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren. Mr. Eric Shapiro, the COVID king, is here. Yeah, you know, it's, I'm more throaty today than I was last time, but I'm, I'm powering through. Well, you're a champ, you know. But you Thank guys, you so much. Thank you. you. you got to stay out of those wicked places you're going to, all these circuit yeah, I know, parties. No. You know? <laughs> My you're God. Setting, you're setting me up to make some controversial jokes. I'm like, I am. I'll let you take that. <laughs> Yeah, you know how I work. Um, <laughs> well, anyway, so we've got we've got uh, a great guest here. It's quite a week, so um, uh, let's just bring him in and, and talk to him. I want to find out. So, Mr. S.A. Cosby, thank you for being on the show. I thank you guys for having me. Yeah. So, so Sean, I'm really interested now. Um, so, you all of a sudden broke out just a couple of years ago, become like real famous and have been doing really well. Um, so, so tell me what's the secret. So how do I get there? I want, I should be doing what you're doing. I want to know. So you got to tell me how, how, how do I become a really good writer like this? What you have to do is get rejected about, about 75 to a hundred times. Mm. Then use that spite to drive your desire <laughs> to be a superstar. No, I'm kidding. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> wait a second so you, you've written three novels right mm-hmm. and uh they, the most recent one is Razorblade tears preceded by mm-hmm. blacktop wasteland and what was the first one uh my darkest prayer was my darkest prayer as successful as the uh subsequent two? Oh no no not at all okay but it was <laughs> it was but it was uh it was a really great um sort of entry uh, in, uh, it was a really great ticket, I guess, sort of into the world of crime fiction. Um, it was, uh, published by an independent publisher, uh, Entry Publications out of DC. Uh, so big up to, uh, my boy Austin Camacho and his wife Denise that run that company. And, um, it was a book that was picked up after I got dropped by an agent. And, um, it sort of was a, a way, it started my journey in crime fiction. So, and then Blacktop Wasteland comes out and I'm, I've been your Facebook friend for a couple of years, and I was seeing mm-hmm. one after the other just winning all these awards. It was getting to the point where if I needed a pick-me-up or an inspiration, all I'd have to do is go to your page, because on any given day, you'd be popping off with, like, fantastic <laughs> news. So I, I know that that book exploded. So tell me about, tell me about what happened with Blacktop Wasteland and what, what went differently in terms of the uh, commercial performance. Okay, so here's the story of Blacktop Wasteland. So my darkest prayer uh, was coming out, and um, you know, again, it was with an independent publisher. So a lot of times, when you're working with, with folks like that, they do the best they can, and then you have to do uh, a lot of work as well. And uh, so it's sort of a punk, punk rock ethos, you know. And um, anyway, I uh, was going to uh, uh, Bouchercom, which is this huge mystery convention. Um, that takes place in different parts of the country, it takes place in different parts of the world. And it was going to be in St. Petersburg, Florida, Florida that year. Anyway, I hadn't had a great year up to that point. Even though I had gotten my book picked up, I had, like I said, been dropped by an agent. And, um, you know, I was with, uh, like the great folks at Entry. But, you know, it's hard. It's, it's rough when you're an independent, um, writer. Um, bookstores aren't that, uh, aren't 
that gracious, let be honest with you. Um, and so it's hard to get traction. It's hard to get attention. So I saved all my pennies and I was going to go to BioshaCon and I had a backpack full of uh, advanced copies of Darkest Prayer and I was just going to hand them out to people. So anyway, what happened was um, about two weeks before that convention, um, I, <laughs> it's so funny, I heard an interview with Bruce Springsteen where he talked about when he wrote Born to Run and how he'd had these two flops for his record company. And so when he wrote Born to Run, he stopped trying to write a hit record. And he just wrote what he liked, the themes and the the uh, motifs that he enjoyed. And I sat down and I said, that's what I'm going to do with Blacktop Wasteland. And mm. I finished it. But I didn't know what to do with it. That's so what I got anyway. So fast forward, I go to, uh, to convention. A buddy of mine named Eric Pruitt is the moderator for a panel on Southern crime fiction. And they need one more person. And he asked me to be on that panel. And I was on that panel with some great writers like Ace um, Atkins and Alex Segura and Steph Post. And and we had a great time talking about Southern crime fiction, you know, the holy trinity of Southern crime fiction, which is sex, class, and race. I think you could throw religion in there for a quartet. But anyway, yeah. uh, after the, after, oh, so anyway, there was this lady who, after we finished uh, talking, she got up and she said, I don't really have a question, I have a comment. And I'll never forget Ace Atkins, who's like 6'4", built like a brick uh, brick house. He nudges me in the arm. And, hey. He's like, here we go. And so this lady basically got up and wanted to complain about us talking about how bad slavery was. And, oh, wow. and so to kind of, yeah, so to kind of diffuse the situation, I made a joke. I said, look, I know it's difficult for you. You feel like you're being put upon. You feel like you're going to be a minority soon. I said, I'm going to help you through that. Me and you are going to work through this together. I'm going to teach you how to drive while black and, you know, get uh, accosted in jewelry stores and stuff. And right. everybody laughed and kind of eased attention in the room. And afterwards, a guy comes up to me, this little studious looking gentleman. He's like, hey, my name is Josh Gessler, and I'm a literary agent. I like to work with you. And that's how Black Tie Weave thing. That's what happened. And then um, he took me on as a client in November of 2018. Uh, he sold it to Flatiron Books in February of 2019, and it changed my life. It changed everything. And then b- backing up to earl- earlier in the story, you said you had lost an agent after the publication or surrounding the publication of your first book. And I think our listeners will be curious as to, as to why that happened and what happened. Okay, so... I'm not going to say who the agent was. Oh, come on. Give us a very name. Nice person. And we, <laughs> no, no. And, and we, no, I can't. I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a gentleman. And a but, um, no, um, we parted ways very, it was amicable. It was, there was no animosity. Um, but getting an agent is sometimes like getting into a relationship. You know, when you're first with that person, you're in the full flush of, of, of lust, so to speak. Yeah. But then sometimes you realize, hey, we don't fit. This isn't working. And so for me and this agent, it just wasn't working. And, and you know, he had Darkest Prayer. He just couldn't seem to sell it. So I, after about a year and a half, I said, hey, let's, let me try to write something else. And in the meantime, I'm going to take Darkest Prayer off your hands. And he was mm-hmm. like, all right. He said, well, let me know when you got something else. And we kind of just parted ways, you know. And after that, I met Austin and Denise uh, Camacho at a live reading in D.C., in Washington, D.C., put on by my friend Ed Amar. And uh, they have a publishing house. They took it on. And like I said, it was an independent publisher. Uh, but we sold quite a few copies. And it just it just re- recertified my belief in myself. It made me bet on myself. Always trust your own good instincts. Because in this thing, whether it's writing, whatever creative endeavor you have, 
No one knows your art better than you do. And you have to trust yourself. Now, I'll give you an example of what I mean. So when he and his agent got together talking about the book, the original title is My Darkest Prayer. And he's like, oh, I hate it. I hate that title. It's not going to sell anything. The first line of My Darkest Prayer, because it's in first person, is uh, uh, the character Nathan Waymaker saying, I handle the bodies because he works at a funeral home part-time. And he's a part-time private eye or unlicensed private eye. And so the agent was like, oh, that should be the name. I handle the bodies. And I'm like, oh, my myself, that's a terrible name. That's an awful name. But because I didn't know anything about the business, I kind of just shut up. I'm like, all right. And nobody wanted it. No one wanted it. And so I came away from that relationship understanding two things that, you know, you got to trust yourself. You got to speak up for yourself. You got to be your own best advocate. And again, that is not to demonize or denigrate that guy. He, you know, very nice dude. Years later, when I won a bunch of awards, he was very gracious and sent me a bottle of of really good bourbon so you know it, it just sometimes doesn't work out with people but you always got to believe and bet on yourself yeah. um because again you're the one that's gonna uh make it happen for you so nobody's gonna ever fight as hard for you as you fight for yourself and th- this earlier agent this individual was somebody that was strong may- maybe not as strong as your subsequent agent but this he was able to mm-hmm. make it work with other people but in your case the chemistry oh, yeah. and the timing was just not there yeah, and this is, a, and again, this person is a very reputable agent in the industry, has had some really famous clients. But, you know, like you said, the chemistry just wasn't there. We just weren't clicking. And, again, no animosity uh, toward that person. Uh, like I said, again, he's been super gracious ever since. We ran into each other at a convention, and we were, and he was very nice. And, you know, he said, I just wish I could have made it work because I knew you had talent. And, you know, yeah. it, sometimes it doesn't work out. You know, and I think you don't need to burn bridges but you definitely need sometimes to walk away. Yeah. 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 How do you deal with all the noise, but cause, cause now all of a sudden it's, you know, the big blow up and then, uh, so you're being watched, so to speak, and you're being talked about and people are, <laughs> well, you know how it is, you know, you, you kind of get, yeah. I, I've dealt with this and I deal with it now, but when it's mm-hmm. sudden as a writer, how do you focus on what you're project is now and what you're doing today rather than all of this other stuff it's tough because i think especially i went from working like 60 hours a week in a hardware store to see my books like on the today show uh, and so and and i now previous to that i've been writing all my life you know i, I i've been sending out stories Way back when, since you know, you had to send a self addressed snap envelope to get them back. So that's <laughs> yeah, how yeah. old I am. But, um, and so, um, it, everything seems to happen overnight, but it didn't, you know. So, I have, I keep myself grounded. I don't, you know, um, take myself too seriously. If you follow me on social media, I'm pretty self deprecating. Um, but I think you have to sort of focus on the, the writing itself, but also separate those things. I, and I, I wasn't always able to do that, especially before things really took off. Um, I was very consumed by writing, and I didn't take time to enjoy life, you know? Um, I used to beat myself up if I didn't write every single day because, you know, God bless him, Stephen King said he wrote every single day. So I got to do that. And, you know, I learned from me, you know, that may work for him, but what works for me is maybe taking a day off during the week, you know, uh, kind of recharging the batteries going for a hike i love that i love i live in i live in, in rural um, virginia and i love hiking nature trails and then sometimes i like just doing you know wild hikes on my own just walking through the woods um 
before the pandemic, I was really in the gym. I need to get back in the gym. I've put on the COVID-25. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but I think for me, taking time out to enjoy things, you know, seeing a movie or, or uh, uh, sitting down and just, you know, meditating or just going somewhere with some friends. Uh, we recently just got back from a, a, a little retreat and on, in, in North Carolina. And, um, you know, it, it recharges your batteries. Uh, it gets you, for me, it gets me pumped to come back to work on one I, on a project. But I will say this, after um, Razorblade Tears and everything that happened with that, which exceeded my wildest expectations, it was hard to start a new project, you know? Um, mm-hmm. It felt like, there's a quote, there's a quote from uh, Game of Thrones, the TV show, that always sticks in my head now. Uh, and there's a character who's a king on that. He says, I was never so alive as when I was winning this throne and never so dead as when I sat upon it. And I, I don't feel exactly like that, but there is this sort of hunger when you're trying to, as the kids say, get on, you know? And, and, and when you get on, sometimes you feel like, am I a fraud? You know, and then you feel like maybe the project that I'm working on, it has to be exactly as good as the project I did before. Or, you know, it's a failure and you've got to kind of put that out of your mind. I had a good friend of mine who told me, he was like, hey, man, this project you're working on now, it doesn't have to be as good as Raised by Tears. It's just got to be good. And I think that's something I'll, I'll always remember because I think that's something that helps you kind of shuff off the expectations. When I wrote Black Eye Wasteland, I had no expectations. Nobody knew who I was. As my grandmother would say, nobody would have spit on me if I was on fire. <laughs> and, uh, and so I had no pressure. It was like, yeah, I'm going to throw you know, car chases and diamond heights and, you know, souped up uh, 74 Plymouth Dusters and everything I loved growing up as a kid into this book. And I was very, very shocked that people connected with it the way they did. Yeah. But then after Razorblade, I felt a ton of pressure. But now I've kind of let go of that a little bit. And I'm just enjoying telling stories. Well, where did that courage come from? Like, you know, when you're back working at the hardware store and and doing day-to-day and you're writing and, and things aren't really selling and you're kind of working all these years, um, probably in your 40s, I guess, and all of us, mm-hmm. yeah. where, where, where does that, because I call it courage. It's a courage to keep on doing it. It's a courage to keep on um, putting it out there for people to to reject <laughs> and, and to put put down, right? I mean, because you know we all yeah. deal with it, and and so yeah. it's a lot of courage because every time you get slammed down, and then you're going back into work, and then some some nasty customer wants this and that, and you're having this. You mm. go, oh my god, you know <laughs> what's wrong with me? And and yeah. you know, so, but there there must be something <laughs> to keep that fire going, or there must be something that you feel was important to get your stuff out yeah the, the nasty customers is what kept me inspired <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> no I, you know what i think it is and it's going to sound really i think pretentious a little bit but i just felt like writing was the one thing that i was really good at in my life it was the one thing that came natural to me it didn't come easy but it came naturally to me and i remember um two instances when i was younger um, that inspired me to want to be a writer. One, uh, when I was about, oh, gosh, I think it was nine or ten, I wrote this really long, rambling epic uh, about <laughs> about elves that lived in the magnolia tree in my backyard. <laughs> and I let my mom read it. And I'll never forget, she's passed on now, but I'll never forget the look on her face. 
you know, like she was pleasantly surprised that it wasn't horrible. And that look on her face, man, is it, it was like a high. I've been chasing it ever since, mm-hmm. you know, because I realized that I had her interest and I had her curiosity all at the same time. I had her in the palm of my hand in a way because I wrote that and she couldn't wait to finish the story. So that sort of mm-hmm. kept me going. And then um, I had an 11th grade uh, high school teacher, my English teacher in 11th grade, Jeff Bones, so shout out to Mr. Bone, who... um after I had written a, 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 a project for, for school, he pulled me aside. He said, hey, I want you to stay after class. I'm like, okay. I thought I was in trouble. And um, he said, I want to ask you, have you ever considered being a writer? Because you have a really unique voice. I'm like, oh, I no, I just like telling stories. So he gave me two books. He gave me uh, E.B. E, uh, Shrunken White's Element of Style, and he gave me uh, the collected work of Samuel Beckett. He said, the first book will teach you how to write, and the second book will teach you why you write. And after reading both those books, I realized this is, it's going to sound real corny, uh, but I felt like this is what I'm put on earth to do. This is the thing that gives me, up to the time, you know, I met, you know, the love of my life. This is the thing that gave me the most pleasure in life, is writing. And even now, when I'm down, when I've had tough times, and I've had some tough times the last couple of years, with the, the, the great successes, have, they've been great. You know, I lost my mom, I lost my uncle, I've had some issues of my own, and it's like, Writing has always been that thing that was able to buoy me, that able to bring me out of the morass, so to speak. And so I guess for me to, to give you a succinct answer, because I tend to ramble, I'm sorry. Um, but for me, I just always felt like this is what I'm put on earth to do. You know, birds got to sing and bees got to sing and I got to write. And so I just was too dumb or too stubborn to give up. You, I remember I read something you put, you posted on Facebook. It was an essay that was really wonderful. It was about being a Southern writer. And it was very striking. Mm-hmm. This was a year or two ago. So I, I was curious if you could speak to that specifically and how important that is to you and what that means. Yeah, I think there are people who exist in this sort of bubble that think the only writers from the South are, you know, neo-Confederate Southern apologists. And nothing mm-hmm. can be further from the truth. You know, the South is a rich uh, panoply of cultures and, and peoples and, and subcultures and as an African-American man from the South, I feel like it's sort of it, part, partly my duty, partly my birthright to write about the South. You know, there, there's no place more afraid of his past and more confused by his future than the South. And I love where I come from. I love being a Southerner. I think Southern pride is not, you know, the battle flag before you hissy fit. Um, Southern pride is a deep abiding understanding of the natural world, of the, the, the mix of culture, the, the, like I said, the underpinnings of Southern society, which is race, religion, class, um, all those things create what I like to call the true Southern culture, so, true Southern heritage. And uh, it's something that I share with anybody who's born, you know, south of Maryland. If I, I go to a Southerner and I say the word Scrapple yeah. or I say um, Sun Tea or I say, uh, you know, uh, if I say <laughs> we're going, we're going, uh, we're going skink hunting. They know what I'm talking about because that's almost like a shorthand. And I I love that. I love having that sort of connection with people. At the same time, I'll, I'll paraphrase James Baldwin. Because I love the South, I, you know, I, I have the right to, I feel like I have the right to criticize her unequivocally mm-hmm. because I think it, it can be a better version of what it is now. I wanted to be the best version of what it what it can be. I wanted to be the best version of what it can be, and so 
um, I take great pride in, in being a Southern writer. I take great pride in being a part of a long, long tradition. And, um, you know, it is something that I take very seriously. You know, I, when I first started writing and I first started sending stories out, there were p- editors who were like, yeah, this is great. But can you change the setting to Chicago? Mm. And, can, and instead of uh, making making them down on their luck, um, you know, uh, ex-race car drivers or down on their luck, uh, farmers, can you make them drug dealers? And Well, that's not my reality. That's not who I am. That's not the people I grew up with. That's not my uncles and my cousins and my grandma and them, you know. Uh, and so it's, like I said, an honor and a, and a, and a duty to talk about, and tell these stories and tell the stories, like I said, of the men and women that I grew up with, men and women, you know, who worked their whole lives just to enjoy a few moments of peace. So that's, it's really important to me. And also you evoke, you were talking about how much you love hiking and being where you are in rural Virginia. You, you evoked a sort of mystic feeling like, uh, I have to imagine it's also very physically beautiful where you are. Oh yeah. It's lovely. I mean, I, I, I have friends in New York city, um, who are very dear to me and they're always like, when are y'all going to move up here? Mm-hmm. When are y'all going to leave Virginia? And I'm like, I'm never going to leave Virginia. I love New York City. I love visiting. I love, like, going to the village. I love going uptown. I love being, you know, going down to, like, you know, Battery Park and stuff like that. I really love the bars in New York City. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, there's something, there's something I'm connected to the natural world here in Virginia, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, right, I can get up in the morning and look out my back window. And there's a family of wild turkeys that live in our backyard. You know, there's a group of there's a group of squirrels that uh, uh, I feed to the consternation of my neighbors. And so I, 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 I'm very connected to that. I posted a thread uh, early this year on Twitter about rural uh, writers. Writers come from rural backgrounds, mm-hmm. and I was, you know, so because somebody asked me why is it that rural writing seems so brutal, and I said, you know, if you grew up in the South like I did, and you grew up poor in the South. You know, you grew up skinning deers and, 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 you know, skinning rabbits and having to chop wood for a wood stove, not as an affectation, but to survive. Then there's, you have a very deep connection to the natural world. And there's a very thin veil between life and death in the natural mm. world. Um, there's a writer named, uh, Laura McHugh. I think I'm saying her name right. Um, who wrote a book last year, this year called What's, the, what we do, what's done in darkness. And she had a great line. She's like, you know, when you grow up poor in the South, you know, Chopping wood isn't an exercise. It's either you chop wood or you freeze to death. Mm. You know, you know, it, it, death is is always around you as a writer from a rural area, whether it's rural Arkansas or whether it's rural North Carolina. Um, and so there is sort of this mystic, quasi supernatural mm. uh, feeling that exists in the South. You know, uh, and and I'm definitely a part of that, uh, and I definitely embrace it. I have a good friend, uh, the writer Jordan Harper, who wrote She Rides Shotgun. One of the gosh, one of the the great crime novels of the last 20 years. And he and I were talking because he's originally from the Ozarks. He's from Missouri. And, but he's lived in, in L.A. for a number of years. And he was talking about how we have a different sensibility when it comes to writing. He has embraced sort of a nihilistic viewpoint, a more James Ellery-esque, um, Elroy, excuse me, uh, esque sort of uh, idea that everything's bad and only a few people that try to swim against the tide, even those people get uh, overwhelmed. Mm. Where I still am steeped in <laughs> traditional uh, Southern Baptist mythology that, you know, uh, I've never seen the righteous forsaken. And so even though they have to go through a lot, my characters usually come out on top. They suffer and they pay for that victory in blood, in, in sometimes buckets of blood, but they usually come out t- on top. And I think it's fascinating because uh, I, I admire him so much. And so to be able to talk 
uh, with someone that I admire about the differences. But that doesn't make, I think, one of us better than the other. I think it's just a different way we approach um, the craft and, and the way we approach narrative. Which I love talking about that, you know, so. Yeah. Is there a, so are you implying, you, you, you more or less said it, uh, but don't let me put words in your mouth. Is there, there's a spiritual component to what you're describing in terms of, like, the veil between yeah. life and death and uh, the near supernatural yeah. state of where you are. So uh, talk more about that. Yeah, so, like, with, with, I don't really – I haven't really delved into it in my first two books, okay. um, but I'm working on something now that really sort of encompasses that. But I think even in Raising by Tears, when um, the fathers uh, go to the graveyard to talk to their sons, or there's this idea that they're on a mission – they never explicitly say they're on a mission from God, but they're on a mission for revenge. And I think if you read that book, this, you know, the spirits of their sons follow them throughout their, their bloody path of, of, of rage. Um, I'm, I'm maybe what you would call an agnostic person. I was raised in Southern Baptist Church. I've kind of moved away from it. I think organized religion is the bane of our existence, but at the same time, I think spirituality is whatever keeps you going. Whatever you think is beyond you know, the, the real that you see in front of you, that can be spirituality. It doesn't have to be a, a Christian dogma. But whatever you take that helps you keep floating, especially like you've seen the last couple of years with the pandemic and everything that's happened, whatever keeps you alive, whatever keeps you going is your spirituality. And so I'm sort of delving more into that now. Like with Bug in Black Dot Wasteland, he has a spiritual connection to that car. You know, that car talks to him in a way, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and that was intentional. I very much wanted to sort of give that car its own personality. Um, and have their connection be quasi—I don't say quasi-supernatural, but right, it goes right up to the line of supernatural, but doesn't go across it. So when you, when you're dealing with, you know, let's say pain or despair or feelings, when you start talking about the last couple of years, at, not only in the U.S., the world, and politics, and mm-hmm. just everything going on, then you've got your own issues to deal with and stuff. How do you, how do you, I don't know, what's the way to say this? How how do you do it uh, in your writing and yet not get depressed or, you know, not get oh. really down? Like, you, you know, because you've got to feel a lot of what you're yeah. writing. Oh, yeah. I think for me, the writing is the thing that keeps me up. Like, in my writing, a lot of times bad guys get their comeuppance. And that really happens in real life. And so that, I mean, it sounds awful to say that, but that gives me so much joy. You know, it gives me, you know, so much joy to see a bad guy get, get their just desserts in my fiction. Um, but also I feel like I heard Alan Moore say something. I didn't take the master class, but a friend of mine did. He shared this clip with me where Alan Moore said, you know, take it seriously that you are a magic maker. You know, that we've been telling stories to each other since people started gathering around campfires. It's a serious thing that a lot of people don't take seriously. But when the pandemic happened, what, what did people turn to for solace? Books, stories, whether it was on TV, whether it was on your Audible, whether it was on your Kindle, you, you look toward the, the Imagineers, the imagination makers to help you through it. And I felt like I helped myself through it. Now, granted, some of the stuff I wrote during the pandemic was very dark. And so, like, but it was, it helped me kind of excise those feelings. I, I have a, yeah, some of that stuff was, ooh, you said to go, like, watch a cartoon afterwards. But <laughs> it, it helped me get, get through those feelings, my own feelings of depression, my own feelings. Of, I'm a very extroverted person. So the pandemic, especially the 
early days was just awful for me. It was horrible. I, I feed off the energy of other people. I love being around people. Anybody who's ever been with me at a, at a, at a convention can tell you I love posting up in the bar and just talking about writing, talking about books that I've read, and talking about the idea and the craft of writing. So not being able to see my friends, my family, it was, it was, it was hell. I, unequivocally, I'll say that. And writing helped keep me sane through that. Um, and so those, like you said, those moments when I'm down and depressed and, and, and sad, writing is, has kept booing me, you know, like, I lost my mom last March um, to complications from COVID, and uh, she had other health problems. She had been ill for quite a long time. And, um, you know, the thing that helped me through that, in a way, was that she lived long enough to see some of this happen, you know, um, to see some of the success, I guess you want to call it, happen for us. Because we, we were very poor growing up. My mom and dad separated when I was young, and my mother had um, several debilitating physical ailments. And so it was hard for us. We just, you know, we didn't have a lot of money and we lived in a single wide trailer in the middle of the woods. And, uh, you know, but she always prioritized educating yourself, whether it was going to school or reading books. She was a voracious reader. I took that from her. And so, um, the way I dealt with her passing was to know that she got to see my name on the cover of a book published by Macmillan Publishing. And I mean, if that doesn't help put a smile on your face, nothing will. Yeah. yeah. So how do, what what is your process then? Like what how does Sean write a book? Like do you do you, do you do it 9 to 5, 5 days a week and can you just sit down and write <laughs> or do you have to be in the mood? Like what what goes on with you especially with these these feelings and moods? So you're having a a hard day and a rough day and all that, can you just still turn it on and write or does it have to be the right timing? Well, the first thing I do is I go in the woods and I dig a hole in the ground and I plead for, no, just playing. <laughs> um, I, I think for me, I, that, that work ethic that I grew up with is, I, you know, I've, I've, writing is the most fun, easiest job I've ever had. So I worked a lot of physical jobs before. Um, before I was working at a hardware store, I was a landscaper, I was a boat mate, I was a bouncer, you know, I was a brick mason. Uh, and so I don't wait for inspiration, especially now, because I feel like you know, I owe people these books. I owe people these stories. So, like, right now I'm working on a book, and I write every day when I'm working on a book. Um, I try to write um, early in the morning. When I was younger, I used to write late at night. I felt like my creative juices were flowing more at night. But as I've gotten older, I've gotten tired, so I try to write early in the morning. Uh, I try to write two to two hours in the morning, take a break, write a couple more hours. And then if I'm feeling really in the groove, I'll write a few more hours. Um, but I try not to overdo it, um, because then you I think you lose the narrative. Um, before I start a book, I write a pretty long, detailed synopsis to myself. It's very much a, like a stream of consciousness. Just it, it's it's almost like a a, a storyboard. Where I'm just telling myself the story idea, you know. Um, and then once I've done that, I use that sort of as a roadmap to write the book. A lot of times, that that uh, synopsis in the book are very different, but it just gives me a guide as to where I want to go with the story, what story beats I want to hit, what um you know, themes both textual and subtextual I want to talk about. And then uh, once I get into it, like I said, I, I'm writing every day until the book is done. And once the book, oh, pardon me, once the book is done, what I'll usually do uh, is send it to a few trusted friends. I don't really want to call them beta readers, the, but they're just friends of mine that are writers themselves that I really, really trust their opinions. And um, I just want to get back their impressions. I don't really get, I don't really get notes. I just want to say, how does this make you feel? What did you think? Did you think the pacing worked? Did you like the 
character? Do you like the main character? Do you feel like I hit the points I want to get? And then after I do that, I kind of work on it a little bit more. And then I send it to my editor at uh, Flatiron, uh, a great person by the name of Christine Coprash. She's really helped make me a better writer. And then she has it for about a month. And then she sends it back. And it looks like a murder scene because it's so much red. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, and then after that, I kind of use her notes and her suggestions uh, and go through it. And sometimes I take her notes and suggestions just whole cloth. And sometimes we debate about them. We talk about them. We have a really good um, working relationship and friendship. So um, I never, she never tries to steer me wrong. There's just sometimes things that I feel are pretty passionate about. And then other times there are things like you got to pick what hills you want to fight on. And not everything is worth fighting for. And uh, once I do that, um, I send it back to her. Uh, we let it sit for a little while and then we send it out. So. That's pretty much the process. It may sound simple, but, you know, anybody who's ever written knows it's, you know, you can stare at the screen for 30 minutes trying to decide the right word uh, for the right sentence in the rhythm of the paragraph you're writing. That's the beauty of writing and the, and the horror of it. So, yeah, you, you also said, you said earlier, after the success of Razorblade Tears, sort of that moment of feeling not necessarily stuck, but like, you know, you, you feel like you have to outdo yourself or you have to match it. And your friend said, no, just make sure it's mm-hmm. good. Do you feel that all three novels that exist so far uh, all hold the same bar, like they're at your own self-prescribed level of greatness or excellence? I think I think Darkest Prayer is not – it's not a terrible novel, but it's not my best. It's not me at my best. Okay. You know, I was still finding my way. I was still sort of figuring out my voice. Uh, it's, but you know, it's funny. Even that, even in saying that, there are there are lines in that book that I feel like are pretty damn good. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> I think you have you have to feel that you have to feel that a little bit if you want to write. Uh, but yeah, there are things I actually had the opportunity to go back and change some things because uh, my my parent uh, publisher Flatiron is is reissuing that book um, this fall. And so I got to go through and do an edit where I could change some things. You know, you can only shine up the turd so much, but <laughs> um, I was able to change some things and 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 adjust some things. I think it's a much better book now. Um, that being said, I think it's not quite as good as, as Blacktop and Razorblade. Um, and those two are neck and neck. Um, what I felt like with Blacktop is it the, oh, is it the, is it the fact is it the fact that the uh, that Blacktop and Razorblade are more personal? Is that what makes the difference? I think so. I think so, especially with Blacktop. I mean, Blacktop is very cathartic. It's me talking about me and my dad. It's me talking about me and my mom. It's me talking about growing up poor in the South as a black man. It's it's a very, you know, personal book for me. You know, if you squeeze that book too tight, you know, you'll see blood come out because mm-hmm. I, I bled all over those pages. Um, but I think with Razorblade, like, I felt when I wrote Blacktop, I, I felt like I'd never be able to do mm-hmm. I just... You know, again, to, to quote Bruce Springsteen, I put everything I had in that book. Everything. I mean, I just shoved it full of everything that I thought made me a good writer. And I never thought I would best that book, you know? And there are lines in that book I don't think I'll ever match, you know? And that sounds sort of egotistical, but, I, you know, just to be honest, I think there are moments in that book that are so fully realized. So when I wrote Razor Blade, because I'm tackling something that actually is a little less personal, um, I felt like I've got to really push myself even harder to make it match Blacktop. 
Um, and by the end of it, I felt like, yeah, I think I did. I, I think I did. Um, you know, ultimately readers decided, you know, that they both, they like both books. Um, and so now with the book I'm working on now, it's even more so. I've got to push myself to match those two books. What, what, like I said, doesn't have to be better. It has to be just good. What, so how do you, I know it's a tough thing to quantify as elusive, but what are you looking for? Uh, if you could quantify it, is it the feeling of emotional excitement that it just packs that sort of punch? No, I think what I look for with my own writing, when I feel like I'm really done something well, when I really feel like I've achieved my aims, is I want people to read the book and feel a deep connection to the characters, the main mm, characters. Okay. I want, you don't even have to like them. I just want you to connect with them. You know, I want you to understand what they're feeling i want you to feel their pain you know pain is universal and so i want you to feel that if i feel like if i'm reading the book and i feel like i feel the pain and i feel like yeah a reader is gonna uh, uh, you know someone else is gonna read it and feel the same thing that's when i feel like i really have succeeded at what i'm trying to do because for me plot is interchangeable you know there's only so many plots but there's an infinite number of characters mm. and or different types of characters and so for me the characters are the basis of the book you know, Ike and Buddy Lee are the foundation of race play. Bug is the foundation of Blacktop. You know, really, to be honest, Blacktop is sort of a cliched setting. You know, it's a former criminal doing the one last job sort of trope. But, you know, it's a variation on a theme, you know, and I think it's the variation. It's in those spaces of that variation where you find the story. Um, Jack London said one time, uh, he said, I'm not much on original plot, but I'm a hell of an elaborator. I try to Take that as my uh, guiding light. <laughs> Did you stay in the um, in the first person after that first novel? No, I went to third person with Blacktop and with uh, Razorblade and with the book I'm working on now. And I think first person is really good for for me as a writer for for anything that's going to be PI adjacent, uh, private eye adjacent. Uh, I think okay. first person really works for that because you can hide clues from the reader easy. I'm finding that out because the book I'm working on now is more of a traditional mystery than, say, Razorblade or, or Blacktop. Um, and, but I think also this is sort of weird. But first person can be can feel very personal, right? You know? Right. It can feel very intimate, and and so um, I didn't want to get that intimate with the books I'm working on now because they're heavy books, man. You know, for all the violence and stuff, Darkest Prayer is a pretty fun book. It's it's it's, a, it's an adventure, so to speak, um, with Blacktop and with Razorblade, they're both heavy themes. You know, Blacktop is generational trauma, you know, and poverty and, and racism. Razorblade is, you know, homophobia and prejudice and, you know, classism and, and uh, violence and the, the high price of redemption. And the book I'm working on now is, you know, a Southern Gothic murder mystery, but it's also about guilt and it's about how we process trauma and how that, you know, shapes us and forms us in, 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 makes us different than maybe who we were before that trauma. So they're heavy books, man. So mm -hmm. I would like to write another first person book. I really like to write another book with the characters from uh Darkest Prayer because I love those guys. They're 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 uh there's a lovable sociopath in that book. So <laughs> you know they're they're fun characters to write. I mean and it, it's like be a nice break from the sort of more uh very deep sort of heavy stuff that I write currently. Are you so everything thus far sounds like if if there's a genre classification that's convenient it would be crime but in the meantime the way you're describing it psychologically and thematically it sounds 
literary. So how is there a way that you classify it or you don't bother with that? Oh, man. I have a friend. I'm not going to say who it is because I don't want to get him in trouble. <laughs> we were talking about the literary versus crime, literary versus genre. And he said, you know what? Literary fiction is just 300 pages of people talking about doing something. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, crime fiction is 300 pages of, about people dealing with what they've done. Right. And I would much rather deal with what, what the characters have done than talk about the potentiality, <laughs> the, the potential kinetic energy. Uh, that's not my strong suit. There are writers who do it well. There are writers that I admire who do it well. You know, Jonathan Franson, Jane Smiley, um, you know, uh, Allison Gitskill, people who really take that literary mantle and run with it. That's not really my thing. Uh, that's not my jam, but um, I'm not opposed to it. I think people like to call my writing literary crime. Somebody tried to say, yeah, you're writing in the same vein as Cormac McCarthy. First of all, do not tell that lie. Because Cormac McCarthy is <laughs> up there, man. If, if, if there's a ladder, I'm on the bottom rung and he's standing above me on the house. He's already off the ladder. So don't 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 get yourself telling that lie. But I do understand the sensibility because I do use violence as a as a tool to show character, you know? Mm-hmm. Um and I you know, I think that's something we all have stolen from him. You know, I think any any writer with the assault that has ever read you know, No Country Old Men or, uh, you know, uh, any of his Southern Gothic novels or The Road, uh, it, it's, or even, you know, Blood Meridian. You've stolen that idea that violence reveals character. Um, and so um, I think, you know, the idea to call him my stuff literary, you know, I feel like call it what you want. I, I just want to tell this story. How, how important is the element of suspense to you? And I, that question crossed my mind just based on you saying uh, dealing with what you've done. So is is that a driving uh, component of your writing, just keeping that tension? Oh, yeah. I think suspense, it's, you know, it's this sort of dance between what you know, what the reader knows, and what the characters know. Yeah. And it's, it's like you're juggling all three of those things at the same time. And when it works... You know, it gets characters' hearts. I mean, it gets readers' hearts beating. You know, um, there's a scene um, in uh, Razorblade where a character um, does something foolish, and, and I fully admit it is foolish. Um, a character has uh, is told that their house is on fire, and they know that bad guys are looking for them, but they got to go back to the house because you know their son's baby shoes are there, and it's the only thing they have left of them. And another character. And tells him, hey, you can't go. This is so obviously a trap. We can't go. And that character's like, I don't care. I, you know, if there's one possible, if there's even a, a glimmer that is true, I gotta go and get these baby shoes. I gotta, and that other character goes with them. And, and so everybody that's reading that scene knows it's a trap, right? But the trick is to get the reader to be that other character. Like, alright, I'm going along with you. I know it's a trap. Let's see what the hell happens. And once you get there, then it's your job as a writer to really come at it from left field. You you got to make it seem like, oh, maybe it's not a trap. Maybe, oh, maybe there's something, everything is okay. No, everything's not okay. Run for your life. And so <laughs> I think those that, that sensibility is something that I love evoking in my stories. I love that sense of, that, that, that sense that is that, that, that undiscovered country between terror and suspense. I love mm-hmm. doing that, you know. Yeah. It's like, it, to, to use that use that example even further when that happens another character is calling those characters on the cell phone yeah. he's trying to get to them because he he can't get to them because 
there's been an accident on the road and it's the only way, only road in and out of this location. And so, because they don't answer the phone, he keeps calling back. He keeps calling back. He keeps not getting the answer. And so you just turn those screws. You keep ratcheting up that tension. And of course, tension is like, you know, suspense is like lust. At some point, there's got to be a payoff, right. right? And so you got to do your best as a writer to make sure that payoff, uh, that you honor the people who went along with you on that suspenseful ride, that the payoff matches the level of suspense that you created. Mm. Do you Do you foresee a long body of work do you think in those terms like do you want a new book every year or two and in the end there's a library <laughs> 40 or are you thinking okay i'm gonna do five masterpieces that i'm done where's your mind around that <laughs> i tell you i tell you what man when you say it like that it does make you think of i think i would love to have like an oh god i can't believe i'm man as a kid i can't believe i'm gonna manifest this but um <laughs> I'd love to have an Elmore Leonard career, Elmore Leonard career where I just put out a couple books every couple of years. Yeah. They don't always have to be that solid, but they're interesting and fun and different and unique enough that people will find them and search them out. Um, I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I think, I think it does get harder. Like every time you write a new book, cause again, you're competing against yourself. I never feel like I'm competing against other writers. I really mm-hmm. don't. Um, I'm always competing against the ghost of myself, the past versions of S.A. Cosby. And so, you know, I, I don't want to ever get to where I'm competing so hard with myself that I become a parody of myself, right, you know? Right. Um, so, but at the same time, I really, I just can't imagine not writing. I just, I love it right now so much. I, I can't imagine not even just doodling with short stories. I just love writing. So I don't even give it that much thought. I just... You know, I could always see, my, I could see myself doing the Lee Child thing. Hey, I'm 68. I'm done. I retire. Um, but also I could see myself doing, you know, the Stephen King thing. Hey, I'm 75 and here's another book. I wrote three while you were taking a nap. So, you know. <laughs> um. <laughs> no, you, you got to play this in ways. Just see. It's almost like uh, too, much, yeah. too much to think about at once. You have to see with each new book, your level of excitement and then the uh, where you're at in terms of your career and the responsiveness and how the whole the whole saga mm-hmm. unfolds. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So where do you see yourself going now? <laughs> um, I have some really cool opportunities that have come up. Again, everything that's happening in the last few years is so far beyond anything I ever dreamed mm. that it beggars itself to be a surreal. You know, mm. I have done some really cool things. I wrote an eight-episode audio drama for Audible. Um, for Kevin Hart's production company. Um, that was in Variety a couple months ago, so hopefully that'll be coming out soon. That was a great opportunity. Doing that sort of gave me the confidence to maybe one day tackle a screenplay, because it's basically a screenplay, is just an audio screenplay. Um, but uh, in many ways, it was a lot easier to write in a book, because you know when you write a book, for me anyway, I always do a lot of details, you know, um, what the weather felt like, what the trees looked like, how the characters are thinking, so on and so forth. When you write a screenplay, you got to do this all the time. You know, uh, and I'm really, gay, I'm really bad at spatial relations. I like to tell people if you built a house based on the way I describe them in my books, it'd be 87 feet long and now. <laughs> so it's like when you do a screenplay, you ain't got to do any of that. Uh, so maybe I might be working on a screenplay soon. Um, I've had talks with some folks about maybe working on some comic book related stuff. Um, 
I did a really cool collaboration. I can't talk about it yet. I'm waiting. So, I, oh my god, we're so close to announcing it. It's driving me crazy. But I, I did a really cool, uh, like middle grade young adult type novel um, with a really interesting person, and I can't say who it is. Um, <laughs> and so that opportunity was great. That was incredibly fun. Um, like I said, I'm working on something right now, uh, tentatively titled uh, "All the Sinners Bleed: A Southern Gothic Murder Mystery." Um, I'll give you the elevator pitch real quick. So. Basically, it's about the first black sheriff in a small southern town named Titus Crown. And on the one-year anniversary of his election, there's a shooting at the local high school. A beloved science teacher is killed by a former student, and that student is in turn killed by Titus's deputies. Um, in, in, in investigating the crime, he finds out that the school teacher, the student, and a third mystery person were in, uh, uh, involved in, a, in serial killings. They were a trio of serial wow. killers. And Titus is trying to find who the third, who the third person is. While at the same time dealing with a sort of neo-Confederate far-right group that wants to hold a march during his town's like you know annual fall fest, and they want to march in support of the town's one, um, and I do it as a joke, very ugly Confederate statue. And so he's got that going on while he's trying to find a serial killer, and uh, he has his own uh, secrets from his uh, inauspicious resignation from the FBI years ago. So um, it's been fun writing it. It 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 took a lot of influence from like. True Detective season one. Um, and, uh, and so it, it's really uh, me, I think for the first time, really embracing, like I said, just I, my ideas of spirituality, religion, both the, the positive and negative aspects of it. You know, um, I think it was Malcolm X that said, there's no place more segregated in America than church on Sunday morning. And so I sort of want to talk about those issues and those things and how those things relate, especially in a small town. You know, and doing research for this, I grew up in a small town. I grew up in a town of 8,000 people. And I was like, as a kid, I was, I was remembered there was a lot of churches there. But I said, let me see how many actually are in that town. So I looked up my hometown and on online almanac, a town of 8,000 people has 27 churches. And I thought that was such an interesting commentary about Southern life, about how we all want to get right with God, but I don't think you're right enough. So I'm going to go over here to this church. I'm going to go over here and that church. And, and, it, and it's ultimately hypocrisy because, you know, I think it was Flannery O'Connor that said, you know, I don't know if the South is Christ-centered, but it's definitely Christ on it. And it's haunted by the hypocrisy because nothing is less Christ-like than judging people by the color of their skin. So, yeah. um, so again, you know, my usual light family fan. Yeah. And I like <laughs> <laughs> also, the, the, the one component we didn't mention also that's really running strong through uh, all your work is it's, uh, there's the, it's socially conscious. It's very uh, also intersected with the zeitgeist in addition to being very personal to you. So that's a really strong combination. Oh, man, yeah. I mean, I think, I think all fiction is like that, though. I think... You know, they're a fiction that is just popcorn fiction. Like, right, right. I don't know if you're ever familiar, but there used to be a series. There used to be a series of book called the the Executioner, the Mac Boleyn series. Oh yeah, yeah, they're yeah. Like okay. American James Bond. Yeah, and and those books are just fun books. I read all those books when I was a kid. Like, they're just fun books. Mac goes into a small town and or a small or a different country and kills a bunch of people and <laughs> you know beds the hottest woman in in the story and, and comes back home and you know lights up a lucky strike and and uh, sips of whiskey and goes on to the next mission. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, there's no social commentary in those books, and there doesn't need to be. You know, sometimes you just want to laugh. Sometimes you just want to be on the edge of your seat. But I think for me as a writer and a person, I wouldn't be the full version of myself if I didn't tackle some things that I found important. But I don't ever do it with a heavy hand. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody, yeah. nobody wants a 300-page sermon, right. you know? So you, it's like 
you get a little like I think it's Mary Poppins that said you get a little honey to make the medicine go down. So yeah. you know, come for the uh, come for the come for the ritualistic serial murder, the state of the social commentary. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so so now let's talk about um, how people can find you. And and call your names, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Do you like yeah. social media websites? You know, hookup apps, like whatever you want to give up. <laughs> I need to get a I need to get a social media presence more. I, I need a website. But if you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter a lot at Black Lion King seventy three, where I post weird observations and I get into uh, spats with older uh, writers about whether. Or not, there's enough white guys publishing. That's the whole thing. You know, sort of yeah, about. yeah, we're oh. yeah. we're not going to touch that. Pat, Patterson was Patterson's line. You know, he's lined up to be on the show, and it's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah and we're sort of in this hold now because he he goes on BBC before us and starts going off. Yeah, it literally right. it literally <laughs> happened a week before he was supposed to be on. I was supposed to co-host. Yeah, yeah, and then, like, yeah. Then now he's he's in the middle of that battle. You know? Yeah, and then of course you know the, no. the agency <laughs> already said to me, "Well, you guys are not going to talk about this, are you?" <laughs> right. <laughs> what do you say? But no, uh, yeah. you know. But uh, <laughs> but no. In all seriousness, all seriousness, I, I, I have a, I'm on Twitter a lot. Uh, so yeah, look for me at Black Lion King seventy three. Uh, you can find me on Instagram and on Facebook. Uh, I will soon. Get a website. I have to, um, but uh, yeah. I love hearing yeah. from people. I get the greatest emails from folks. Um, nice emails and weird ones. I get very interesting emails sometimes, but uh, mostly are nice ones. Uh, I love hearing that people read my books and enjoy them. You know, I think I took a lot of inspiration from Stephen King, uh, not only stylistically, but you know, he used to always have this thing in front of his books where he wrote to the the constant reader. You know, yeah. and he thanked them for reading his books and. I feel like that. I, I want to thank people for reading my books. I want to thank people for reading my stories, you know, because like I said, it's, I've had a lot of jobs and I've only been good at one, you know, and uh, it's the thing that makes me most happy. It's the thing that brings me most joy. Um, I, I never, ever take any of this for granted. My mom used to say, you know, the shine wears off the new pennies quick. Yeah. And so you've got to enjoy it while it lasts, mm. you know. And um, for me, part of enjoying it is – you know, shouting up my friends that have books coming out, uh, talking to readers about my books. I love doing book club um, things with Zoom. You know, when we all got became experts at Zoom, so I had a lot more opportunities to do book club uh, meetings, and I love it because nobody is as passionate about your book as a book club. And so, I, you know, and sometimes they yell at you. You know, I had a lot of people yell at me about the ending of Raised by Tears, and and that's fun, you know. And um, but yeah, it's it's just it's a magical world, man. Yeah. You know, and Ooh. I can't believe I get to do this for a living. Yeah. Well, you know, um, we appreciate you being on the show. And I'm going to have to look up that Stephen King guy. I think he, <laughs> he keeps coming up. He comes up a lot. Yeah. yeah I keep hearing about this guy. And, I, you know, I've yeah. still yet to read one of his books. So it I sounds pretty good. He's got a great... He's got a great career ahead of him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he might do okay, but I, I, I hear it's really tough for white guys right now. So I don't know. All they have to do is just take that one clip of your voice, Al. That's all. Yeah, I know. I know. It's just like I, I had to do it. I'm sorry. Anyway. Well, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, and so um, our guest has been the, the one and only Sean Cosby. So thank you for being on the show. Man, thank you guys so much for having me. This was a blast. I really had a great time. 
You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.